Hello and welcome to Weird Together. I'm Brennan Store, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. I'm Joseph Camel, host of The Cardinal Rule. And this is the show where we celebrate the latest and greatest in independent horror film. We're not critics. We're not experts. We're just weird. Together. Joseph, my friend, it is good to be back here with you. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. You know, I uh, went to Florida last week and, uh, so you know, it's despite... Yeah, despite all the things that are very Florida about it, uh, the beaches and the sunshine and, you know, took my sons down there. You know, we rented a little house, uh, went down there for four days and went to the beach, hung out with the boys, just had a really good time, taught them how to play poker. My 11 and eight year old. So every night we'd get on the phone and they call, you know, my wife would would call up and, you know, they want to catch up. And, you know, my eight year old, because he loves shock values, like, Daddy taught us how to gamble, <laughs> was, was his lead-in. Um, but we had a great time, so, you know, I'm, I'm relaxed, refreshed, and, you know, getting ready for the semester, and, uh, you know, good uh, to be back. Glad to be talking to you. Uh, Bren, how are you, sir? While you were teaching your children how to gamble, I went to go see Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny twice, so uh, which of us has the more exciting life here, Joseph? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that. I appreciate that. That's very merciful of you. No, it's been very quiet here at my end. Although I did have one moment that, that annoyed the hell out of me. So it's, it bears mentioning in lieu of things to celebrate things, which annoyed me, Joseph. So every Saturday, my wife and I, we go out for breakfast. It's one of my favorite things to do. I, I love it. And there is a place we like to go to where you basically serve yourself. And if you're sitting on the patio, they have a kiosk where you put in your order and then they bring it out to you. You go pick up your own coffee and then they bring you the food. Now, the kiosk is literally just the same POS system that the staff uses. So it's not necessarily user-friendly, but at the same time, it's not hard either. You take one second, you look at it, okay, fine. For example, if you punch in a coffee, it says caffeine, no caffeine. Well, that means obviously caffeinated or decaffeinated. This is not rocket science. Well, I got stuck in line behind these chuckle fucks who thought they had to do a tight five on every single menu option that came up. And Joseph, I nearly went to jail for manslaughter because I just wanted my goddamn huevos rancheros. I'm a simple man, Joseph. I was just hungry. I wanted my Tex-Mex food. Instead, I got shitty jokes from Norwegian tourists. The Norwegians do not do jokes. The, you know, the Germans, the Germans know they're not funny. The Germans haven't figured out. The Germans like, no, I just don't do jokes. We, we, we look down our noses at you. We judge you from afar, but they recognize we don't do jokes. The, these Norwegians clearly missed that memo. And, uh, really, I almost sent them to meet their, their fish Jesus because by God, they just wouldn't stop. And I just wanted a coffee. So that's, what's exciting in my life. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't know that I would trade my weekend in Florida for that, but, uh, it sounds interesting, Bren. Thank you for lying to me, my friend. (laughs) But Joseph, we are not here to talk about my frustrated breakfast experience. We are instead here to talk about the angry black girl and her monster. But of course, before we start talking, we have to do that thing we always do, Joseph. And that is acknowledge that whenever you watch a movie, you don't watch it in a vacuum. You walk in with your expectations, with your, uh, what's going on in your day, with every film you've ever seen. And so before we can talk about the angry black girl and her monster, we have to take apart the baggage. 
All right, Joseph, what, if any, baggage did you have going into the angry black girl and her monster? Well, have I mentioned before that I have a PhD? No. Jesus. It's never come up. You should have warned me. If I wasn't sitting down, Joseph, I could have been seriously injured. The shock. (laughs) The shock. Have I mentioned what what, what it is in, though? Never. It is in sociology. So I'm a sociology professor, and I I mentioned that not just for a cheap joke. (laughs) Believe me, it wasn't cheap. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But... One of the things I teach about and have taught about over the years is race and ethnicity and the, the institutions uh, kind of, uh, you know, related to, to those topics. So when I saw the, the film title and the film poster or the kind of the movie poster, the cover art for it, I immediately knew this was something I was going to be interested in. You know, the title alone gave a clear impression that the film was reappropriating sort of the the stereotype of the angry black person and the angry black woman, right? And and there's so many subtexts, and we'll get into this within the film. I understood, at least I thought I did going in something, at least in terms of the tone uh, and, and kind of the subtext that would be present in this film. So I had, you know, not read anything about the film. I didn't know the, the filmmaker. But just based on the title, I had an idea of what I was in for, and I, I was really looking forward to it because it's an area, again, that I have an interest in, that I've, that I've done research in, that I've taught in, and, and the, the, you know, the film did not let me down. For my part, I first became aware of the film when a trailer played at Cinema du Parc in Montreal. Now, I, unfortunately, I didn't get to see the film in theaters. I ended up seeing it on home video. Uh, because basically what I do is if I see a trailer that looks interesting, I immediately log into my Letterboxd app and I put it to my watch list. So the second it comes up on any video on demand service in Canada, I'll get an email. And so I did that with, with the angry black girl and her monster. And the reason I was particularly interested is that I'm not really a Frankenstein fan. I know that's sort of a sacrilegious thing to say when, as a horror fan, but I like the book. I love the book, uh, Frankenstein, I should say, but I don't. Frankenstein on film bores the shit out of me. So many Frankenstein films, they're not adapting the novel, they're adapting the original James Whale film. And so I find usually Frankenstein is so boring and mannered and tiresome, I just don't give a shit about Frankenstein movies. So I was really curious to see how the social issues that you alluded to there and that we'll be talking about later informed an adaptation of of Frankenstein. And, And I wasn't disappointed, as I mentioned, I quite liked this film. And I've been looking forward to talking about it. You know, I want to uh, just kind of, you know, talk about something you, you just mentioned there. We don't spend a lot of time on this, but you talk about how Frankenstein, you know, as a character in film kind of bores you. And I, I see that. And I wonder how much of um, is the Frankenstein monster, Frankenstein's monster, especially, you know, kind of the, the version of that we, that we all know and that has been adapted, maybe not suited to modern horror. Modern horror, right? It's 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 a lumbering, slow-moving creature that is okay. It's reanimated based on pe- parts of other creature, other humans. Okay, we get that. But like, once you've seen it, it's like, well, what about that? Is all that scary? I guess okay, it's gonna strangle you. I mean, in a horror, it's just something about it. Maybe just doesn't work in modern horror. Maybe unless you take a dramatically different approach towards it. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I think you've got something there, yeah. I think also it, because James Whale's Frankenstein was made at a time 
when cinema technology and audience expectations were so different, it's a simplistic version of the story. It just is. And, and I'm all for, you know, respecting cinematic tradition. I'm all for paying tribute to the greats of the past, but also I get sick of that shit. And that's, that's why I do this show is because I am tired of constantly treading that ground over and over and over. Like, Hey, we're going to do, uh, you know, again, we're going to do neck bolts again. You know, it's, it's like, we get it. You saw Frankenstein when you were a kid. I don't give a shit, man. Do something new. Have a thought. It's like, I saw a film recently and I won't say which, but I was considering doing it on the show and then I watched it and I didn't really like it. But basically, if you told me that this guy broke into John Carpenter's house and stole his notebook, I would believe you. And not one of his better notebooks. Because the whole film stylistically was, was so reminiscent of John Carpenter stuff, even to the, to the production logo was revealed in the same style as the credits for the film, The Thing. And look, I love John Carpenter's work. I truly, I own most of them, you know, and every time they release a new one, I go buy it like an asshole. But I am really fucking sick of people shouting out and doing visual homages to John Carpenter films. I just, I'm tired of it. Come up with something new, man. Have a fucking idea. So I think that's the problem with, with the modern incarnation of Frankenstein is it's, it's rooted in something that has no relationship to us. Uh, or very little connection to us because it's not related in something that was made for artistic reasons. It was made for something that was limited because of, I think, technological reasons. Has it become a simulacrum? We've just collapsed into a singularity, Joseph. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think that's, I, that, that's, that's my take on it, at least. It makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think we probably need to make our way down to the ring, though, don't we? Yes, sir. Because there is only one place gentlemen such as us can have conversations such as these. And that's the Toctagon. Welcome to the Toctagon. Two men enter. Two men leave. All right, Joseph. We got a little ahead of ourselves. We're, we're older gentlemen. This happens sometimes. We got there a little <laughs> earlier than we'd intended, but that's okay. We have other qualities that, uh, that, that right. make us Damn desirable. It. So anyways, moving on. What did you think of the angry black girl and her monster? I really enjoyed a lot of the subtext. And what I'm about to say is something that I think has been said in interviews and, and, re and reviews, but I think the stories about the community and the families were actually more central to the film and more interesting than the monster story itself. The monster itself was not that terribly interesting in and of itself. There were a few things, I mean, you know, it was fine. There were, there were a few parts of it that were interesting, but there was so much more that was interesting about Vicaria and and her story and her father and, and everything that was going on in that community. And there were so many interesting subtexts that we, that we will get into in this conversation. And as someone, again, who, who was taught and has studied in, in the subject of race and, and institutions uh, of oppression and, and the way the racial dynamic is in the United States, I just saw so many kind of touch points to things I I'm familiar with. And it was really fascinating to see how that was woven into the film in a lot of different ways and a lot of really interesting representations of, of the community and the family. Um, so yeah, I mean, I liked it a lot and it was more about all the subtexts and, and the, the different issues that were present than the actual monster story itself. Right. Yeah, no, that, that's fair. I mean, I, again, I, I also liked the film and I would, I would agree with that. I think that it was a Frankenstein story because it was, you know, that was the inspiration. But I think 
with a few tweaks, it can be any kind of horror story. You know, with a few tweaks, with the strength of the cast, and I think the strength of, of, of the writing in a lot of places, with a few tweaks, it's The Wire. It's a drama. And that's something that, that I was thinking about when I first started watching the film. And my, one of my first notes is he's shot this almost like a Terrence Malick film. You know, the, the shots that follow Vicaria as she, as she goes to take out the trash and sort of you see this world around her. It's shot in this really, be- frankly, beautiful way. This is kind of widescreen. It just follows her through this neighborhood and it looks beautiful. And, and I think it is so, and, and this is another point I'll talk about later, but I think it's so often that, that poor neighborhoods are shot like war zones. They're shot to look like shit. And you know the, the spaces people live in are shot to look like shit. But the, that is not the case in this film. Everyone in this film, when you see an apartment's interior, it is a clean, well-kept, organized, colorful, tasteful space. And I think that's, again, it's, it's a way of showing, one, it looks better, but two, I, I think it just shows respect for your characters and your world. Because you want to communicate, these are people who deeply care about their homes. They deeply care about their, their world. And the economic situation isn't great, but they still care. And, and again, I feel that's something films get wrong quite a bit. Because I, I grew up reasonably poor. I grew up single parent. We were lucky enough to rent a house, but you know, we, we did not have a ton of money. But our house was clean. You know, that was a big thing. You couldn't control how much money you made, but you could control how clean your house was. And so no matter how poor you were, you were still clean. We always had clean clothes. You know, we always went to school and we were always washed. And I think that's something that, that again, I think films get often get wrong about poverty is that there's a lot of pride there. Yeah. You know, um, I also appreciated the way that the community, like this was clearly sort of a, a, a you know, community based on, that was kind of a socioeconomic kind of working poor, yeah, working class, working poor kind of on the, on the margins of that, you know, so they, they were, positioning it within a certain socioeconomic status and a community of color. And I think it's all too often in films that are centered around poor or working poor communities of color, it is often the inner city urban community, right, with dilapidated buildings oh, yeah. and things like this. And and when I, I live in the rural south and there's all kinds, obviously, of issues and his, deep histories associated with race and, and class and you know, and where I live, there are certain parts of town that are kind of public housing and and certain parts of town that this neighborhood reminded me of some of the places near where I live, which is more of a rural community, but a city in the rural community. And it felt very different than the inner city Baltimore or Detroit that you see or Chicago that you see so many films framed in. And I appreciated that because I think it gave a more realistic, diverse picture that like there are working poor communities like this all throughout the South and Midwest and throughout the country. And you have families there in various positions. You have the person who's a drug dealer, but you also have the the single father mechanic who's raising a very precocious and intelligent daughter. You have quite a diversity of family situations and it just all felt more authentic and less stereotyped. Yeah. um, In terms of the way the community and the people and everyone knew everyone there, right? Like there's a scene where the one guy who is kind of works for Kengo's one of one of his lackeys for back of lack of a better term comes across Vicaria and and her brother, the monster, when they're breaking into the car and he's got his gun out. He's like, Vicaria, like he knows her. Yes, I was right? that was he's exactly like, what are you the example doing I was here? thinking of. Right. And it wasn't just like some cliche 
what are you doing here? Get the F out of here. Like, he was like, you're not supposed to be here. And, and there was this sort of this knowledge of, no, you're one of the kids here who has a chance out and you're smart and you're going to school. What are you doing here right now? And he knows, right? It just felt more like what a community, right? In, in all of its complexity. Yes, this guy worked for a drug dealer, but he's also a part of the community and everyone knows each other there. And yeah, there's a scene where Vicaria is, because of course Vicaria is an incredibly intelligent young woman who is, has a misfortune of being taught by one of these terrible authoritarians who seem to find their way into the school system, who don't care about education, they care about power. And the classroom is, is, a, is a place for them to, to enact that power. And Story has said in interviews that this is based on something his sister dealt with. You know, the teacher is intentionally mispronouncing Vicaria's name. And then when she pushes back, she says, maybe I'll just call you Vicky. And it just infuriated the shit out of me. And again, that was something that Story's sister, he had to deal with, or pardon me, she had to deal with at one point. And it got me thinking, you know, it, it really bugs the shit out of me when people act like names from different cultures are somehow difficult to pronounce or remember. Because y'all motherfuckers learned how to pronounce Daenerys Targaryen. <laughs> What you're talking about is ethnocentrism, right? Yes. It's it's it essentially, I mean, I know it's it's it absolutely it's there there there's there's power embedded with that. The power of, you know, I'm part of this dominant group, and you have to cater to my, me and fit into my world, but I don't have to make an effort to even get your name right. It is kind of the message. There's a great quote from Bomani's story that comes from an interview about that scene. He said. It was important to capture not only just big systemic pressures that are so flashy in the news these days, but even just the subtle microaggressions that we deal with on a regular basis. And since we're talking about, actually, before we talk about uh, performances and things like that, because I have some, some points there, I want to just go back to the intro when we're introduced to the neighborhood. And again, just how beautiful story makes this neighborhood look. And again, I was reminded of, of Terrence Malick's Tree of Life is what kept coming back to me. But the thing that really struck me, and again, I don't think this is an accident, you know, as the film is opening, everything's beautiful, it's bathed in sunlight, everything is glowing, and we're seeing, we're seeing the dealers get started for the day, you know, Kango and his guys are selling drugs on the couch, the kids are playing, but the kids are playing with a super soaker. Jerome is playing with a super soaker, and it really struck me that, at least here in North America, I don't know what it's like in Europe, but guns are such an embedded part of culture, even in our play, even in our innocent moments, we can't get away from guns. And, and this is not a screed against guns. I'm not, that's not what the conversation we're having here. Uh, I've fired guns. Yeah. If, if you're a gun person and you, you've got thoughts about this, keeping yourself, I don't give a shit. But the way that this particular thing, this cultural idea has seeped into every part of how we live, including the quote unquote, innocent parts. Yeah, I mean, the, obviously that's a polarizing topic, but there are people who are gun enthusiasts, people who are collectors, people like to hunt. And it, it, listen, if that's your thing, great. But there's another level to this, right, where it is so deeply embedded in the culture, where there, there are manifestations of that are problematic and are, are kind of socialized and all the ideation surrounding that. There's a problem culturally with it. And I, I know that's going to be an unpopular thing in terms of how obsessed yeah. And embedded it has become. That's it. Because again, I, I like shooting guns. I think it's fun. You know, when I go to Vegas, I go to the range. 
I've gone to the range in Revelstoke. You know, again, I'm not afraid of guns. I'm not anti-gun, blah, 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 blah. We're not going to have the gun conversation. But yeah, it's, it's the degree to which it's embedded and normalized and fetishized that is, for the purpose of this conversation, it's, it's noteworthy, I think. And given what happens to Jerome, it's even more tragic. And I really think like that character of Jerome, he's a really brilliant creation because again, he, we see him as soon as the film opens. And then in his first interaction with Vicaria, when she's heading to her lab, you know, he kind of hems her in cause he wants to see what's inside there. And he's this little boy carrying a gun and he's trying to talk tough. He says things like life is cheap. You know, he's trying to harden himself. He's wearing colors. Again, he's saying all these tough things, but he's got a ring pop on his hand. Mm-hmm. And she manages to scare him by talking about dead bodies and it freaks him out. Like he's, he's just a little kid, but he is trying to be this thing. And it ends, uh, of course, the way that usually does, which is he ends up dead way, way too young. And it's such a heartbreaking moment. Like this is another film that I think we've, when we've done several like this, that works as well, if it was just a drama as it does as a horror movie. That, and that's why I said the Frankenstein of it all. It's kind of neither here nor there. I don't, I actually think the Frankenstein parts were the things that worked the least, but the way the themes of, of, of violence and what it does to us psychologically and, and spiritually, I think is, is powerful regardless of, of what you base the film on. And I, I just want to, before we move on, I just want to just kind of bring up this point, even though it was unintentional, I think running this on an episode after Brooklyn 45 actually really worked out thematically really well because you wouldn't think there's a connection between like a a paranormal chamber drama set in post-war 1945 and a modern retelling of Frankenstein in Charlotte, North Carolina. But I realized this today, I was, as I was writing up my notes, they are so similar because they both feature in their way, veterans of war who have been changed forever by their experiences. They both feature people who have done terrible things, but still deserve love. And they both speak to the ways in which we damage the world when we refuse to let go. And it, it, it's really, really striking how similar those are uh, again. And, and it speaks to the universality of, of those experiences of, of what violence does to us and what happens. Yeah. When we can't let go Vicaria, Vicaria's grief causes her to distort the natural order of things. And that in turn, as we'll discover at the end of the film, that takes almost everything from her. And she manages to make something of it. And I also, I'm not totally sold on that part of the film. Although I think again, thematically, I think you, you can make an argument for it and I'm sure we will, but yeah, this, this is the cost. Yeah. And I want to kind of, um, take, you know, what you've got there and kind of take it in a, even a little more pointed direction about the film. And I, yeah, I think you're right. Like there's, there's something there about the trauma of violence and we often put war in this different category because it is for lack of a better term. It is institutionalized and endorsed and accepted violence, right? Yeah. In a sense, right? Uh, but it's still people going into places where violence is happening, maybe being the ones who are doing the violence or victims of the violence or both and dealing with the trauma thereof, right? And both films deal with that. And I want that whole violence and trauma kind of theme. I want to kind of take a step back. And I feel like in many ways, the monster in the film was kind of a representation of, you know, the actual, her brother, I think Chris, I believe is his name, her brother, the monster, 
was actually in many ways a representation of the real monster of the film, which was more broadly kind of the various forms of racism and institutional marginalization and their, the, those institutions' impacts on communities of color. I think there was a larger statement. And, and you hear community leaders um, often talking about our boys are killing themselves, right? We're killing each other. And there's just this really complicated, complex, and really sad and disastrous kind of institutional kind of web of things that lead to that, right? Whether it's the the school to prison pipeline, mass incarceration, economic inequalities that lead to disparities in in resources and education, uh, you know, food deserts, all of those things. There's this term in sociology, social class reproduces itself, meaning people are much more likely to kind of be in the same social class as their parents or maybe move one degree, right? So there's just all these things that keep perpetuating these, these kind of same socioeconomic conditions. And then you have things much more nefarious, like, again, you know, mass incarceration and the, and there's a great film and you'll want to put this in the show notes. Um, 13th, I believe we've talked about this before. Uh, in fact, it, if, if you haven't seen it, if you go to YouTube and go to Netflix's YouTube channel, you can watch it for free. You don't even need a Netflix like subscription. It's available on YouTube for free, the film. And it talks about the way this whole thing works and the way that for-profit prisons and some of the legislation and the policies that have been enacted by lobbyist groups that have worked in tandem with the, the for-profit prison industry and, and all of that have in many ways targeted communities of color, particularly those that are in lower economic situations. And all these things create a milieu, an environment where people do turn to drugs. Like, like, you know, Kango makes this comment, like there's a really interesting point where Vicari is confronting him about selling drugs to her father. And he, his, his retort is that, you know, your father was ready to kill himself because of everything that had happened. The drugs were his release. I'm the one keeping your family together. Now, maybe that's a perversion of reality to some degree, but these things are symptomatic of a larger context that creates situations that immiserate communities, right? So the real monsters is those institutions that cause these kinds of things to happen and that the monster himself, right, attacks his own father, but is himself torn, right? There's points where the, he, you seem, it feels like Chris wants to reach out to Vicari and, and to Jada, the little girl he actually is, you know, uh, the, there's some sort of connection between them. But then it seems like he's torn and he almost seems like this manifestation of the self-destruction that comes because of all these institutional, you know, influences. So there's so many ways that it just feels like the monster was the representation of the real monster, which are these institutions. There's another thing I want to build on that, but I'll let you give you kind of a chance to respond or share your thoughts on that. No, I, I think you're right. And I, again, that's one of my few complaints with the film is I just feel that the monster, the, the actual presence of Chris in the film, it's unfocused. Like that usage of the care of the monster and his progression from simple giant to killer is not as well fleshed out as perhaps it could be. 
is is my one my one real beef because I thought it's almost like that's happening off to the side while Vicaria's story is unfolding with her her situation with Kango, and it it almost makes me think that that's where where Story's heart was with telling the story. I mean, it, you know, he said he said in interviews he very much loves uh, Frankenstein and. Obviously, that comes across, but I, I just feel like the strength of the story really was with Vicaria and and the actress who plays Vicaria, uh, Leila De Leon Hayes, was so good that I can understand why you would want to stay with her. Uh, but again, I think it hurts overall because we don't get the time with Chris to really understand where he starts versus where he goes. Uh, you know, obviously he's he's attacked by the police, he's shot by the police, and that is sort of meant to be the moment that makes him a monster. You know, this is the violence he suffers. And so then he becomes what he becomes. And I, I understand the subtext there, but dramatically, I felt like it, it didn't necessarily work. Uh, although I did appreciate what I think was some very, very uh, dark humor in the scene where he is shot by the police because he is a, he's a monster. Like there's nothing about him physically that looks human. He, he looks monstrous. And the police say over the radio, he fits the description. What? No, there's like, again, I understand, like, and I think that was intended as very, very pitch black humor because he's a young black man, so he fits the description. But, you know, there's no description that's like hulking monster with a completely malformed face. You know, there's absolutely no way. But again, I thought that was a very, very clever, uh, clever little use of that, of that line. Um, but yeah, so that's probably my biggest beef with the film is, is I felt the Frankenstein, as I said, the Frankenstein of it all is a little undercooked. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- speaking of the, the police, I think there was a scene in the film that I thought there was something brilliant in it in terms of communicating something using the horror genre to lean into this subtext about the institutional racism and, and uh, all these these other kinds of things that we're talking about. And I think this scene really, to me, kind of helps drive home this idea that the real monsters are those 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 various forms of racism and, uh, and other things that we that I was talking about here. There's a scene when they are at dinner, right? Vicaria and her father and Aisha and and the whole family, her whole family, and they're all having dinner, right? And then there's a banging at the door, right? And it's the police. Right. And the little boy, I forget his name, but the little boy's like almost going to get the door and like, no, don't open it. And they're banging and they're, it's the police. And can we come in? No. You know, and I, uh, well, have you seen anything? Specific? No, nothing, not at all. And he's shutting it down. And that scene felt more like a scene from like a movie where it's like, you're, don't let the vampire in or don't let the monster in. Don't oh, let yeah. the creature in the door. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's almost like the boy almost opens the door and it's like the, the you know, Vicario's father has to go there and slam the door shut and lock and keep, they're keeping out the monster. Yeah. Right. It feels like a scene like that from a horror movie, a keep out the monster. But the monster here obviously is representation of, of law enforcement. And as you know, we talking about there's a very difficult history with law enforcement and communities of color. And to me, that scene, something about that captured, right, that integration of these social commentaries about race and institutions of racism and those things within the genre of horror. And it took a scene that felt like something out of a typical horror movie and made the monster in that scene, right, a scene that feels familiar of don't let the thing in the door 
and it turned the monster into the police officers. So to me, that scene captured that beautifully. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Uh, there was another scene, there was a dream sequence that I thought was very effective horror, uh, which is Vicaria's imagining Chris coming out of the apartment where it's ultimately discovered he has been hiding. And I was not surprised to learn that one of uh, Story's influences in the film was David Lynch, because that dream sequence is very David Lynch. Although it was interesting that the Lynch film he specifically name checks, because it's not one people talk about when they're discussing his work, and it's Inland Empire, which is a very difficult film to love. Uh, and I myself did not get it when it first came out. It came out, I think, in 2006. I was a much dumber man. So I'm hoping that uh, I can revisit it and kind of get more of what Lynch was trying to communicate there. But when the horror works, like when the horror happens, it is very effective. But I, again, I think there's an uneasy marriage maybe between the more extreme horror elements and the domestic elements. Like when it is doing one or the other, it's exceptional. Uh, but I feel like when they cross over a little bit, it gets a little confused. It's, it's all very competently executed. I just feel like thematically it, it, it's a little bit like, again, I, I would have happily watched a drama about these people trying to figure their shit out, you know, or, or I'd watch a, a, a full, you know, full blown horror film about a monster or even, you know, some kind of like monster, like monsters in police uniforms, you know, something like that. But again, I felt like it was a little bit of an uneasy, un, uneasy marriage otherwise. When I think about the film, the stuff I think about, and I've thought about it a lot, like I, I watched it twice and, and I, I've thought about it quite a bit since I saw it. It's the personal stuff that really comes back to me. I mean, the scene where Bakaria's father, Donald, who's played, I think, by Chad L. Johnson, Chad L. Coleman, Chad L. Coleman. Yeah, no, yeah, he's uh, he's well known. He was uh, in The Wire and The Walking Dead. He's exceptional. And I actually, yeah. he made me tear up twice. Uh, the first time when he's defending Vicaria f from her teacher, uh, because just the, the, the passion and the the strength in what he's saying, you know, the, the, like the love and the defense of his daughter is so intense that I, I just, I teared up. And then when at the ta the dinner table scene, when they go from joking to being a little more serious with each other after, I believe it's after the police have gone, but they're going, they're very, they're kind of kidding around. And then he gets very serious and just talks about how he, he loves her. And he's not really sure if he's, you know, if he's doing the right things as her, as her dad. And he's just, again, he's so fucking good. And these are the things I remember. Again, not necessarily the horror stuff. Again, the moments you've talked about, the police and, and the, the moment I'd mentioned with the dream. But, and I should say also some of the gore effects were extraordinary. Uh, and as I understand it, that was sort of a one-man band. I think the, uh, the gore was done by Christina Cordum. I don't know if I'm saying the last name correctly, but that who is, that's whose story has said handled all that. All very, very good. Uh, Jerome's death gutted me. I was so upset. I mean, you kind of thought maybe it was coming, but when it happened and you see him just bleeding out on, on the ground and you saw this little kid and you see where he ends up, it's, it just horrible. And even Kango, I came to quite like Kango. I mean, the, the actor who plays him, Denzel Whitaker, really imbues him with a humanity straight off. But then when you learn more about him, it's really kind of interesting because you, you get the sense of him as a person, not just a villain. You know, this is a guy who in a different circumstance, could have been a successful businessman. You know, this is someone who's savvy, who is canny, who is, who understands business. And really the thing that undoes him is he doesn't understand the more savage aspects of it. You know, he's, in a way, he's kind of like an old school, an old school CEO, an old school boss. He has scruples. He has concern for the people around him, 
but ultimately he is subsumed by the the person underneath him who is a predator who is a legitimate who, who doesn't have those scruples doesn't have those qualms about about violence and about taking what he thinks he's owed there was a just a little th- line that most people probably missed it but there's a point where Aisha when she and uh Vakari are having their kind of argument at the table and they're arguing over you know really interesting topic of you know like Aisha clearly has this perspective of challenging what's being taught the history that's being taught you know in kind of in, in schools predominantly white schools and she she has this very kind of challenging kind of a view of that and then there's a point where she calls uh, Vakaria PWI princess and PWI, if you're familiar, is predominantly white institution. It's a term. So you've got HBCUs, right? Historically black colleges and universities. Um, There's also HSI, Hispanic serving institutions. These are categories, right? Of institutions and a term that's used often within sociology, like within my field uh, and within education is PWI, predominantly white institution, which is obviously, you know, uh, a term used for colleges and universities and, and you know, school, even post-secondary or secondary schools, even in this case, uh, that are predominantly white in terms of their students. And that is where Vakari is attending, right? She's attending a, a school that's predominantly white and her trajectory is probably, unless she makes the intentional decision to pursue a college education at an HBCU, she's probably on trajectory to go to a predominantly white institution. And Aisha calls her PWI princess. And if you're not familiar with that term, you would miss that, right? But it hits on that subtext of if you're a student in a, in a community that's a working poor community and you have these aspirations of higher education and you're, you know, and you're in this really difficult position where you get it from every direction. You see how she was treated by the teacher in the class, you know, like you, you, this burden of representation, being a a black woman in a school that's predominantly white with white students and white teacher, and everyone's looking at you and you're under the microscope. And, you know, if you get a teacher who's a piece of work like this teacher, they have their, you have these really bad situations. So you deal with that. But then you deal with, from a social class perspective, oftentimes people who, like I'm a first generation college student, oftentimes people who are kind of the first to go to college face some backlash from their own communities. Like, oh, what, you think you're better than us? I was fortunate not to experience that, but like you get that, right? And then you get her dynamic with, with Aisha where she's kind of like, Oh, you're, you're, you're kind of getting educated by, you know, that institution you're selling out. So Vakari is in like this very difficult position as, as someone who's being supported by her father, but also is out, you know, kind of being treated poorly by the teacher and then also having to deal with the tensions of having to justify, right. Her trajectory and her path to even her very good friend who calls her PWI princess. On the subject of the schooling, there was something that Aisha said that I, I really thought was interesting. And again, I, I feel like just as the subtext of the damage caused by refusing to allow the world to move on is relevant right now, Aisha also talks about real history versus what is taught in schools. And more than ever right now, at least I understand it as I understand it in America, 
we are at a place where some people think if some history makes them uncomfortable, it should not be taught. And it's just, you know, that's nonsense. Uh, but I thought as an interesting sort of maybe even meta commentary, I'm not sure, she's using as an example of real history, the autobiography of Malcolm X written by Malcolm X and Alex Haley. And that's fascinating because that in itself is a kind of invention. There was a comprehensive biography of Malcolm X released about 10 years ago by Manning Marable. It's called Malcolm X, a reinvention. And it's, if you're at all interested in Malcolm X, I, I'm fascinated by Malcolm X. It is a hugely comprehensive biography, and it specifically looks at the parts of the autobiography, which are not fictionalized, but what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Self-mythologized. You know, for, for example, X very likely overstated his, his involvement in the criminal underground. Some of his criminal stories were likely enhanced for the, the telling. And so I thought it was, again, I, I, this is a little bit outside my wheelhouse, Joseph, so bear with me. But Again, I thought it was kind of an interesting meta-commentary that even the real history that she's using to illustrate her point is itself maybe not quite the true story. Unfortunately, history and, and even just in general, you know, what is taught has forever been sort of this battleground. I, I sometimes do kind of a, a lesson in my sociology class talking about textbooks. I call it the contested textbook. And I talk about this history of if going back, you know, like in our own history, in the United States, uh, you know, for, for going back a couple, you know, 100, 150 years, there has always been this, um, this tension, this debate, this, this fighting over what has, what is allowed in the textbooks. You know, we, some people think this is a recent thing that only the people who are railing against critical race theory, who don't actually understand what it really is. <laughs> Uh, what they're railing against is not actually critical race theory, and the debates over what should and shouldn't be in textbooks—it's not a—it's not a new thing that's been going on for a long time. Talked about anti-Catholic kind of bias in textbooks at one point, and there was a piece of legislation passed in the early 1900s in Florida, of all places, that was offering a monetary reward if someone would write a good and honest history that told a good and honest telling of the South. Basically, they didn't like the northern versions of the, right, the Civil War and the South story, right? I talk about this in class, but this has been going on forever. And what ends up happening, and this happens from all directions, everyone kind of does this to some degree, or at least there are people from every position doing this. They're wanting to tell the story the way they want it told based on their interests, <laughs> And that's always been going on. And that's even referenced in the film when Aisha is accused of hotepping. Are you familiar with the term? I'm not. So I introduced you to PWI. You can introduce me to this. So I, I don't know a lot about it. So I'm not going to pretend as though I'm an expert. But yeah, she is the woman who's with, I might be her mother at the table with, with um, Vicaria's father. She, Aisha brings up a certain historical point And this woman says, you're hotepping. And hotepping is, is basically sort of historical revisionism through the African lens. So I, a while back, I saw this program on um, black nationalists, but it was fascinating is they were educated people. They were intelligent people, but they made some assertions about history that, yeah, probably not right. That were, you know, again, re-envisioning history through basically the version of history they wanted it to be. The contributions of people of color throughout history have 1000% been minimized. 
I mean, the, the fact that, that the ancient aliens movement exists is a testament to that. You know, the Egyptians couldn't possibly have built something so impressive or the, you know, the Aztecs, the Mayans, they couldn't possibly have built something so impressive. Some very pale aliens must have come down and helped them out. Like that's dog shit. You know, the whole thing is built on, on racist bullshit. But that doesn't mean that everything was done by those people. But this black nationalist movement, or at least the one featured in this program, they were, that was kind of their take on it. Like, oh, Shakespeare, he was a black guy. King whatever of, of England, that was a black guy. And that's kind of, that was, the, you know, that's how they referred to him. And so, so that is, that is hotapping. That is the viewing history through this very particular revisionist lens where you're, again, you're taking a thing that is absolutely true that the contributions of people of color have been completely undervalued and stricken from the historical record in many cases. And you're using that to then assert that in fact, all things are this, you know, the first people to go to every continent were these people, the first people to establish, you know, X, Y, and Z are these things. And apparently that is, that is ho-tapping. Interesting. Okay. I, I learned something new tonight. Dishwasher goes whoosh, my friend. Dishwasher goes whoosh. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts on the angry black girl and her monster? Overall, I, I thought this was a really good film in terms of, especially like you said, you know, the community and the family story. Um, I, you know, this was the first major, you know, feature film for this director. So I, I think this is quite the debut. I, oh, yeah. I look forward to seeing, you know, and we, we didn't get into it, but the film craft, like the, you know, the cinematography, uh, the acting, I mean, it, it was, a those parts were all very solid, right? So there's just so much interesting stuff to talk about. We didn't get to that. So overall, um, I thought this this was a really good film. I really enjoyed it. There was a lot of things that that kept me interested. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Again, I'm whatever Bomani story makes next, whether it's horror, whether it's drama, whether it's a you know a period musical, I'll watch it. Uh, I think he's a very talented fellow, and I'm eager to see what he does next. And honestly, the performers, I've seen Denzel Whitaker. He's apparently been around for a long time. He was a child star, from what I understand. But I'm familiar with him from uh, Black Panther. Uh, but whatever he does next, I will absolutely be watching. Same thing with Leila De Leon Hayes. Uh, whatever she makes, I'm there because the performances were uniformly exceptional. And I'm deeply, deeply happy we saw this film. Honestly, the, my only concern with, making, with covering this film in the show was I am such a mayonnaise, milk toast, white bread motherfucker, Joseph. I didn't want to put my foot in my mouth. Because I don't want to be the one of those guys who's speaking on something that they don't understand, you know. Um, but that that's a that's a you know that's my thing. That's not, got nothing to do with the film. And I would happily recommend it to anyone who's looking for a, a horror film, or, or even honestly, a, just a film to watch. I think it's if you can handle it. It, it bummed me out. I'll be honest with you for a while, but it's yeah, I thought it was a, a brilliant film. And one last thing on that subject: if you are looking for a companion to this. And Joseph, I really recommend this for you. I can't get at it here anymore. For some reason, distribution is idiotic. It's not available in Canada anymore. But the director, Ramin Barani, his film Goodbye Solo, it is set in an immigrant community in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. This was shot in Charlotte. And it's a really touching drama about a friendship that spans not only generations, but cultural, cultural lines. It's it's a great movie. Ramin Barani is a fucking treasure. And I don't think he is given his due as a filmmaker. If you liked The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster, I cannot recommend Goodbye Solo enough. All right, my friend, where can everyone find you online? 
Well, you can find me on Twitter uh, at J-O-K-O-M-O-13, Jokomo13, or at least as long as Twitter's still around. And you can find me on YouTube at The Cardinal Rule if you are into NFL football. I do my thing over there. All right. I'm at Largely the Truth on Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, and Threads. And you can find my other show, The Ghost Story Guys, co-hosted with Paul Bestel, everywhere. Find podcasts live or at ghoststoryguys.com. Don't forget to tune in to our monthly live streams. Those happen at the end of every month, always on Wednesdays. If you're listening to us on YouTube, make sure to give us a like and subscribe. If you can, rate and review the show on any platform that allows you. It bumps our numbers, gets us in front of more folks, and we appreciate the pat on the head. Always makes us feel good. All music for this show was composed and performed by The Revenants. The Revenants are a project of Boston-based musician Elliot Wilder. You can find them at therevenants1.bandcamp.com or by searching for The Revenants on any streaming platform you like. Our theme song is Rest in Peace from the album Music from Big Beige, again by The Revenants. Until next time, remember, we're weird. And you're weird. So why not be weird together? (laughs) 